want to welcome you once again to our service this morning. I want to especially welcome those of you that are visiting with us today. If this is your first time here at Grace Baptist Church, we extend a warm welcome to you and thank you for being a part of our worship service today. And I would invite you to take a moment, if you would, there's a QR code that is printed on a cardboard, a piece of cardboard that should be right in front of you in the pew. And if you can scan that with your smartphone, that'll then take you to a place where you can just fill out couple of questions, tell us a little little bit about yourself, and then we will follow up with you and answer any questions that you have about our ministry or how we might be able to assist you and help you. And once again, we just want to thank you for joining us here at Grace this morning. I was uh, recently uh, just thinking through our theme here this month for Missions Month. We have been talking about, we started the month looking at the fact that Jesus said, that upon this rock, to, the, to Peter, he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And Peter became one of the apostles that would be the foundation, if you will, on which Christ would launch into this new program, this new dispensation, if you will, of seeing the church, the body of Christ, become God's chosen group of people through whom he would reach the world with the gospel. And that is what we are charged with as a local church body, we are commanded to be a part of the Great Commission, telling others about that great name that we just sang about, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as a local church, we want to certainly emphasize missions, those that are serving on the foreign field, but we also want to recognize those that are serving in various capacities here in the United States. You know, I've often said this, you probably have heard me say this before, but I've always defined God's will this way. God's will is defined as where giftedness, opportunity, and passion collide. That is where God's will for your life is found. I don't believe there's a little dot that you got to go somewhere, somehow, hopefully you stumble upon it and find it. I believe God has gifted you particularly and will give you opportunity and will give you passion for those things in this life that God has called you to do. But there's another important aspect to that, and that's what Pastor Benson, in, in many regards, is here to talk to us about today, and that is the area of preparation. Because sometimes we get the idea that all I need to be is passionate about something or have a little bit of giftedness in something, and I can go out and just accomplish great things for the Lord. I think if we were to look at Scripture, it would bear out that God put his called servants through a time of preparation before he called them and sent them out into service. I was listening to a podcast this week, and after the podcast, the podcast was talking about what pastors need to know in ministering in 2021. Pastor Benson, I hope this is an encouragement to you, what I'm going to share very briefly this morning. After listening to this podcast, I came away with a list. Pastors need to have degrees in pre-law, accounting, public speaking, counseling, leadership, graphic design, computer science, and somewhere along the way, you got to sprinkle in a little bit of theology. The office of a pastor has greatly changed in the last 50 years, in the last 10 years since I've been in ministry, 20 years since I've been in ministry. The challenge is evident. The need is great. And places like Bob Jones University are committed to training people for vocations. Yes, that's true. 
but they also are meeting a very important role, and that is training tomorrow's church leaders to be all that God has called them to be. 1 Timothy 3.1, he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good thing. It is a worthy calling. I mean, you think about Pastor Benson's life. He is a friend. I should tell you that first and foremost. He is a personal friend. We've known him. Uh, I never get his wife's name wrong, by the way. Her name happens to be Michelle as well, which makes it very easy for me. Not that I would ever forget your name, Michelle. But I've known the Bensons now for a very long time. And those of you that maybe are new to Grace and the history of our church, we have only had four senior pastors. That is amazing. Number one was Pastor Nolan. The second is to my left, Pastor Hershenhan, who is here with us this morning. Pastor Benson has actually served here on two different occasions. He served here as youth pastor a number of years ago, and then later, big ministry here called him back to be the senior pastor, to transition with Pastor Hershenhan to become the senior pastor here at Grace. And at that time, I actually was serving under Pastor Benson down in Orlando, Florida. I must like you. You got me to Florida. That was pretty... That was pretty amazing. Then our ministries crossed paths here when the Lord brought us through Pastor Benson here to Grace. And our our ministries have been really intertwined throughout our years of ministry as with Brad Young as I was here last week. Currently, Pastor Benson is serving in the Graduate Studies Department at Bob Jones University. And his position has changed several times. I'm not even sure what your title is right now. I know you have one, I'm sure you do. I looked it up online, I couldn't find it. I don't know what that means. Maybe, maybe there's a discussion that's going to happen when you get back. I don't know. Um, but Alan is a gifted man, uniquely gifted. Um, he is a man I love like a brother. He is a man that I've spent time in the mission field with. He is a man with, a, with tremendous integrity, a man who has invested his life and his ministry for one purpose, and that is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ wherever he may lead. So it's an honor, Alan, to have you and Michelle here with us today. Jump rope, sorry. As he said, that is first and foremost my friend. Um, I actually think when I had part in seeing the Knowles come here to serve with us at Grace, he actually was coming after us serving together in Florida with the thought, okay, it couldn't really be that bad. I have to go, I have to go check it out and make sure that it's not really that bad serving with Alan. Um, I still remember the day you showed up and us getting a crew together to go out this side door when there wasn't a building there and get your books. And I thought, are you really going to use all of these? So anyway, um, it is a tremendous, a tremendous joy uh, for Michelle and I to be back here at Grace. By the way, congratulations. I know this was an arduous journey uh, to get to having a place that is this beautiful to serve the Lord in. But congratulations to you. It is it's just remarkable to be here and see what God uh, has done. And sometimes in the midst of all of the work and all of that, um, you appreciate it for a little bit and then you don't. Um, but this is just a beautiful, God-blessed place. Uh, a joy to sit in your worship service this morning, hear you worshiping the Lord together. Uh, I had the privilege of, of being in one of your connect groups, uh, Rex's group this morning. And uh, did a Q&A, talked some about the, the things that we're going to talk about this morning. Um, but I actually want to uh, show you a video first uh, that actually will tell you a little bit just about uh, Bob Jones uh, Seminary in particular, 
Uh, it is called More Than a Degree. And then I'll come back up, share a few more ideas, and quickly we're going to get to the Word of God. If you guys are ready, we'll show that video. Not just for a degree, or to write a dissertation, sit in a building, classrooms, or fill shelves with books. Seminary is more than that. To equip yourself as a holy minister with theology that transforms your ministry. To surround yourself with like-minded people who push you to serve the church and advance the gospel with professors that have the experience to connect the theology you learn to the life you live. To proclaim the word accurately and with confidence because it alone has the power to transform lives. You go for more than a degree. privilege, uh, actually Dr. Knowles mentioned um, the change in my position, there has been, um, I basically have said, what do we need to do, and, and I've been doing that, my title is Executive Vice President for Student Development and Ministry Advancement, uh, with primary focus over student life and our seminary, and so that, that's kind of my two buckets, you might ask, how do those meet, I'm still asking that. Um, so I, I flip hats. That's, that's what I kind of I do. Spend a lot of time in interaction with the pastors and the constituency uh, that make up Bob Jones University. To give you an idea of what that looks like, 51% of our students, and that's a number that we see often, um, but 51% of our student body undergraduate come from 250 churches. 49% of our student body come from 1,100 churches. So approximately 1,400 churches, so you can imagine the problems in one, and yes, it really is true, multiply them by 1,400, and, and that's, that's kind of our constituency. Uh, if you aren't uh, knowledgeable about that, every church has an opinion. Not just does everybody in a church have an opinion, but then every church has an opinion, and all of them feel free to share them with Bob Jones University. So, uh, it's actually a really fun dialogue, because I listen as though they're telling me something I've never heard before. And they're telling me as though there's only one view. And I've heard it before, and they don't realize that there's 1,300 other views. So uh, it actually is a really remarkable world. Um, it is a joy-filled place right now. Our campus is alive and active. Our students want to serve the Lord. They're excited to be at university. Uh, we are growing. We went through four years of success, successive growth, and then everybody could probably say what I'm going to say next. And then came COVID, like everybody else. Um, and we had 80 international students that just couldn't get into the country, as well as other students that due to fear factors and those sort of things didn't come. And so we were down one year. And this is the, the year after. We thought it would take three years to recover, and God has smiled on us. And actually, uh, we think that that's happening much more rapidly. We had 725 in our incoming freshman class this year, and we're projected to have 805 next year. And so by God's grace, we are, we are growing 
And uh, that's not just numerically, it also is in light of our, our mission. We believe that God is enabling us uh, to see happen the things that he would call us to make a priority. One of those, then, is actually seminary. And so I want to share just a few thoughts with you. If you can switch over to my PowerPoint, there it is. And I'm probably not going to see it in the back, am I? Okay, so that's okay. As long as you see the better part of me, seeing the back of my head is better than the front. So um, at the seminary, we launched a new strategic plan. And uh, I'm no Moses, and so if I had to follow a cloud, I'd really be in trouble. Uh, I know better where I'm going when I can lay out some kind of strategy and follow it, and that's really what I did in stepping into leadership at Bob Jones Seminary, and became burdened. You might have seen, uh, you see it at the top, our tagline, Proclaim, Serve, Advance. It actually stands for Proclaim the Word, Serve the Church, Advance the Gospel. That's, That's who we are. That's what we exist to do. And in this five-year strategy, we became burdened. You'll notice that serve is a different color, and it is on purpose. We are convinced that right now, as a seminary, what we need to do best is serve the church. Um, Seminaries do not make pastors. Churches make pastors. And so in doing that, this strategic plan is based around finding out how can we serve the church? How can we help you? And what we're finding more and more and more is that pastors speaking for their churches and churches speaking for their pastors are saying, find a way to serve our pastors. How can you help our pastors? How can you help the church? And so that has become really the flavor of all of our conferences is how how can we help? What tools can we give you? How can we facilitate ministry? And in particular, the church bigger picture than a local church. What are their needs? And so I I mentioned to the Sunday school class I was in this morning, and in this process, we began talking about what are the needs in the church, and we very quickly became shocked at the fact that the needs in the church are in the pulpit. So to give you a, a statistic from George Barna, today there are more pastors over 70 than there are under 40. What does that look like in 10 years? It looks like a worse scenario than we have today. So in investigating, I I made a call to a a man in Wisconsin who has been active in actually trying to find pastors for pulpits. So I'm connecting with people like that. I reached out to him. We made another phone call and we talked to a representative in Wisconsin, one in Illinois, and one in Indiana. In a very small slice of the church world that you and I know about, not a a big slice, not the the broader what we would think of as conservative evangelicalism and not even the whole of what you might think of as fundamentalism, a very small slice. And in that conversation alone, in that small slice of the world, we identified 103 churches that today don't have pastors. So you take that and multiply that, just simply go across the country, and there is a desert of pastors. Some of that is churches have shrunk, pastors have left, and they no longer can call a pastor. They need someone bivocational. Some of that is church revitalization. And then there's the vast need of church planting across our country. And so you see on the the screen 500 by 5 by 5. To explain that, uh, we like to use the phrase that ministry education is on the move. What do we need to do to help the church supply that need? And our goal is, through our seminary, to have 500 pastors on the pathway to the pulpit in the next five years and every five years after that. That somewhere in the cycle of five years, we want to be producing 500 pastors. Um, Last year, at about this time, our seminary enrollment stood at 499. By God's grace, I had to do a report for our board two weeks ago. That enrollment stands at 629. We've grown 40% in the last two years, which 
general survey and all kinds of statistics makes us the fastest growing seminary in the country, which that's just God's doing. We did not anticipate that. But part of what is happening in seeing that happen is we actually said, how can we do that? What things do we need to do to somehow help see churches get pastors in the pulpit? And we focused on five things. If you've known me for any length of time, it shouldn't surprise you that I have five Ps. Some people know that. But anyway, um, this happened sitting in a restaurant as I began to think through what do we need to do. The first was our program. How do we address seminary program? And two things came to mind. One, how do we make it accessible? Average pastor today is lasting three years. They go through school, they train, they come out, and folks, I'll talk about it in a minute, but life hits them. Your life hits them. And they know there are answers, but they're not sure where to get them, and they're not sure how to give them, and when they give them, they get blasted. And so they quit. The ones that are highly motivated, move. They'll go somewhere else for three years, and somewhere else for three years, and they're done at ten years. And so we're seeing a cycle of those who are going into ministry actually not lasting. And part of that is not just that they need another degree, they need ongoing equipping and they can't leave their church to get it. And so we addressed accessibility. Raised money, went into all of our classes and made them all smart classrooms. And so right now, any degree that we offer, all the way from our, our introductory master's degree, all the way through our PhD and DMIN degrees, you can take every class in every degree and every full degree live stream. You never have to come to our campus. We have intentionally made them accessible. So I mentioned the class this morning. I slipped in at the end of last year. I was going to teach a module on addictions in one of our counseling programs. And I was just not even thinking. I was just going into class, going into teach. And I walked in. I looked up at the back of the room. And I was teaching in seven countries. And so accessibility is one of the things that we need to address. Here's the thing that we're finding about the future of the ministry. Yes, there is a place, and I'll talk about it in a minute, for that young man who is in your church who is in high school and feels like God might be calling him into the ministry. That is true. And he comes and he gets an undergraduate degree. The growth of our seminary, however, is not going to be there. It's actually in what you would consider non-traditional. It's people like you that got early retirement from their country, company and say, now what am I going to do? And you're 56 and you feel like God might be using you in ministry. How do you get equipped? That's the question we're trying to answer. It's that young guy that got his degree and really has some, some substance to him. And he's out there and he's fighting and he's struggling and he's teaching people. And he's trying to do all the things that Pastor Knowles mentioned. And he's not sure what to do next, but he can't leave that church. We've made it possible for him to sit in his office on a Tuesday morning and go to seminary and get whatever next degree he needs. So accessibility, and in doing so, we're actually trying to direct seminary education to the places that help. So now I'm dealing with post-COVID people that are overwhelmed with addictions. I'm not sure if you realize that that's the reality, but it actually is. I sat around with a lot of free time, and I got connected to a virtual world that was bigger than I am, and there is more addiction to pornography today exponentially than there was two years ago. How does a pastor deal with that? When someone's honest enough to come and say, I have a problem, how do I help? So we're doing things like building a nine-credit certificate in counseling addictions. You can come do that specifically. How do I answer the questions that are swirling today? We offer a 12-credit certificate in apologetics. And so you can never leave home and do those certificates, get those certifications, but all of them are scaffolded. So I do the two that I just mentioned. I now have 21 credits that all will work towards my next degree. So that leaves me nine credits short of my next master's degree, or leaves me a third of the way to my master of divinity degree. And really all I'm doing is focusing on getting what do I need to serve my church. 
And so we have addressed accessibility in all of our programs. The second thing is affordability. We really believe more than ever that to be equipped to do ministry in today's world, a man needs a master of divinity. Now, we can debate all of that. God equips a man for ministry. This is just a means of helping with that. But it takes that much education. What is that? That's 90 hours after an undergraduate degree. We believe that that could be someone that did an undergraduate degree in Bible or someone that did an undergraduate degree in accounting. Yes, if you have any undergraduate degree, you can come and start in our seminary and we meet you where you're at. That may be that for you, that means you're going to start all your biblical languages or it might be that you come and have an equivalency and you get to start in advanced languages, but we're going to meet you where you're at. And so one of the things that we have said is our graduate degrees aren't any cheaper than say, I'm going to go to med school. Well, they're a little cheaper than med school, but I'm going to go get an advanced degree in anything. It still costs the same for education. The problem being is most of our pastors come out and still pastor a church of 100. It doesn't mean that that church of 100 says, oh, you got that degree? I'm going to give you this much more. And so many of them, because of what they are doing, come out of seminary with a lot of debt. The ones with best intentions say, okay, I'm just going to go to work and pay that off. And yet they are married and they have their child and they get a mortgage and many of them never get to paying off the debt and they never make it to the ministry. The other side of that is there are many that look at the world around them and they got a job and actually it's pretty comfortable and they like the job they got and they never make it to the ministry. And so one of the things that we are trying to address is affordability. Not many places are able to put in place scholarships for seminary and that's what we're focusing on. I'm raising a million dollars a year for seminary scholarships, primarily to partner with churches. I want to be able to go to a church and say, you've got a man that is that retiree. You've got a young man that's sitting in your school and you, you see the giftedness in him for ministry. You need to build the relationship with him and we're just here to help. So if you can give him $1,000 a year to go to seminary, we'll match it. We'll give him 1000 too. If you can do five, we'll do five. And one of the things that we're doing is trying to build cohorts because I believe pastors need relationships today. Jay, would you agree with that? Part of what we need is, is people that'll give us a kick in the pants when we need it. Or put an arm around our shoulders when we need it. Or someone I can dialogue and find out, well, how did you address that problem? So we're building cohorts. So one of the things we're doing is what we're calling a four plus two. If you come as an undergraduate student, you're committed with your pastor that you're going to go all the way through a Master of Divinity, you can come to us and do an undergrad and an MDiv in six years because of the overlaps in our degrees. You don't have to take languages at both levels. And because of that, you can finish in six years. I've put in place the funding that any young man that comes under his pastor's guidance to do that does all six years tuition free. And so right now I have four. Our goal being next year, we'll have 20 and we want to do 20 a year. And why would we do that? Because we want to see them get the education they need and get out and serve in churches equipped without the debt keeping them from that. You see the rest of those things? We just realize that in order to carry out that plan, there's key things that we need to do. One of them is partnerships, that we really need help in offering all the education that people need. So one of them, for example, how many of you would know the name Ken Ham? Answers in Genesis, the ark that. Ken has become a dear friend, and we right now are ready to roll out a partnership with him in a, a, a master's degree in creation apologetics with Ken Ham. And so the Lord is actually giving us the means uh, whereby that we can actually find areas and we don't have to be the expert in all of that. Uh, God is actually allowing us, because our programs are accessible, to partner. Ken is not moving from the Ark to Greenville. He's actually going to partner with us and he can teach remotely or by, by adjunct and many of their profs. Uh, partnerships with mission agencies. Um, like I described, many people going to ministry today, even to the foreign field, are going not out of an undergraduate in Bible and they want to go and be equipped. So 
We partnered recently with ABWE. ABWE sent 180 individual missionaries to the field in the last three years. Anybody coming out of a secular degree comes to them and does 30 hours of graduate, graduate education in preparation for going to the field. Many of them, when they finish that, want to get to the field, but they also see the opportunity that education brings them. And going to the field, they're not sure how to continue to get that, but they want to get a Master of Divinity. We are partnering with them so that anybody that's finished that comes and those 30 credits actually transfer into seminary. They can go ahead and go to the field and finish the rest of the 60 hours from Africa, from Romania, from wherever, and actually finish a Master of Divinity with us while getting to the field and continuing their, their education. And so partnerships like that are key. People, meaning who is serving. And so as we're building out and God gives us opportunity, the three professors I hired this year have all come from pastoral ministry. Why? Because I do want somebody that is equipped to teach systematic theology, but I want him to teach it to pastors. That as we study it, he is able to say, now when you talk about ecclesiology in your local church, here's the questions you're going to get. Let's actually wrestle through that. And so hired this year three men who are coming from pastoral ministry intentionally because we're focusing on equipping pastors. Is that all we're going to do? No. Over half of our seminary right now is female. And so our projection is that as we focus on this and we have 500 men on the pathway to the pulpit, our seminary enrollment's actually going to be 1,000. And so, yes, we're projecting in the next three years we're going to double. That, that is our projection. And, and the interest level seems that that's exactly where we're going to be. Plant, that is addressing our facility. I mentioned doing live stream classrooms, that sort of thing. But it's actually taking the seminary building that you saw in the film and building it out into a learning environment. So we're remodeling this year our entire seminary building and equipping it to be the kind of learning spaces and environments that today's seminary students need. Not just a big library, but collaborative spaces. Our students all get a membership to Logos Bible software when they come. We help build that library out for them, and then we challenge them to work in cohorts through tackling tough theological issues. And then also uh, profile. One of the things that we believe is necessary for pastors today is that when they walk into a church ministry, it's not new to them. And so basin and towel is a phrase that we are using. If you come to our seminary, you are going to engage actively in a church ministry. We currently are partnered with an organization right now in Greenville alone. We have 18 churches that need revitalized. Our students are getting $500 intern and internship stipends either to go be the lead pastor there and preach or to be an assistant pastor who leads in worship so that they're actively doing hands-on ministry while they're getting their education. Pastor Knowles and I would both echo the fact that when we went back to seminary, there was something different about the education we were getting because we knew we desperately needed it. That brings a very different approach to the classroom. And so those five Ps are actually what God is uh, using to help us build out this vision. All of that to say this, it's impossible. It's impossible. But so is the gospel. But God is the God of the impossible. He is the one that said, I will build my church. So will there be pastors for tomorrow's pulpits? I have zero question. The question is, will God use your church and churches like her and our seminary to be a part of that? I believe if we don't, he will find somebody. We just want to put ourselves in a place where we say, God, here we are. Use us. And so pray for us at Bob Jones Seminary. It is an exciting, exciting place to be. As you can imagine, with an undergraduate student enrollment of 2,814 this year, we are actively pursuing seeing our undergraduate students 
be interested in ministry. We have started what we call Ministry Chapel. Ministry Chapel is not for people in ministry majors. It's for them plus anybody in any other major, 103 majors that say, you know what, I am doing this, but I believe God wants me in ministry. I'm going to be bivocational in ministry. I'm going to go to a closed access or limited access country, and I'm going to use this degree to get in. So we opened chapel. We had a first of them. You have to be committed to pursuing some form of ministry to be there, and we had 600 students coming to ministry chapel. About 400 of them are in non-ministerial majors. They're saying, God's going to use me in a limited access country. And so we praise God for the opportunity to help churches supply the need in their pulpits. That being said, let's transition to the Word of God. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know, with the internet, there are certain things you get enamored with. Anybody have something that you just happened to watch on the internet and you think, well, it's kind of strange, but man, I can't stop watching it. Anybody have something like that? Okay, so it's just me. I'm weird. That's okay. Um, Recently, that thing for me was tsunami. Uh, That is not a dish you find at your local Chinese restaurant or Japanese restaurant. It is what we would know as a tidal wave. And I got enamored with tidal waves and the power of water. Anybody else? like that? Maybe not. You live here at the coast. I know what that's like. Uh, so, but in, in particular, recently, a few months back, I was watching a particular video, and it was just very interesting. I don't even know where it was, but there was a camera that was mounted somewhere, and it's looking out at, at the shoreline, and out in the distance, you can see something coming. Life is happening. Cars and trucks are going by. Things are happening. Uh, people are talking. You can hear that, and then you see some people looking out over a railing out, and this thing is coming, and you realize it's a wave. People scatter. The wave breaches the shoreline. That which normally holds in the tide, this thing breaches it. And you're like, oh, wow. And the water keeps coming. And eventually this street where there are cars and trucks, the water is now rolling over that seawall and is flooding there. And all of a sudden there are cars and trucks that are floating. And you're like, oh, wow. There are large buildings in the foreground. And you think, okay, the water will rise and and eventually it will go out. Those buildings, they're, they're solid. They'll stay and eventually the water is covering those buildings. And in this particular video, the the thing that was so disconcerting to me was by the time the video ended, the video camera that's been viewing all of this is now adrift. It's floating. So why do I say that? It's an illustration. Friends, today in many ways we are dealing with a cultural tsunami. And there have been times throughout our history where Waves come and they might breach the shoreline. And we're like, whoa, that's, that's really bad. Whether that be the shoreline of what we think are our cultural norms or our moral structures, but it goes back out. And then there are times that it rolls in and there's a lot of debris. Like, whoa, I did not see all of that happening. I see fractured lives and, and, and vehicles, if you will, morally afloat. But they're somewhere out there, like they're not here. They're they're somewhere over there. It's like, whoa, I'm really glad that's not my car. And then there are some shocking times where just the structures that we are sure, though, this wave will come and go, those things are going to remain. Like the definition of marriage, the definition of, of life. The structures that we know, like like surely no one's gonna mess with like the big blocks of like gender. And then we realize, whoa, those things are underwater too. And here's why I use the illustration, because if we're not careful, 
many of us in viewing that are just like the camera, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves adrift. What's real anymore? Do I really believe what I've always believed? And so we look at that, and we look at scenarios like I have described, pastors quitting, and empty pulpits, and churches that have shrunk, and no longer can afford to pay a pastor, and so what do I do, and where do we go? Because I know God has called the church to be His mechanism to make a difference in the world. How in the world can I ever make a difference? And so we come to the pastoral epistles. Paul is writing to Timothy. Not really a pastor. He's more a pastoral emissary. We don't find a church calling Timothy. But he's not an apostle either. And so Paul has left Timothy to lead this church at Ephesus, a key church. If you want to go study ecclesiology and you want to find a book to study it in, you really go to two places. You go to the book of Ephesus and you go to the pastoral epistles, and you, particularly First and Second Timothy. And by the way, they're both written to one church, one through the one who's leading them and one to the body. But it's actually where you get your best view of what the church is and what it's supposed to be doing. And Paul has left Timothy after three years of ministry there because it's such a vitally important church. He says, you need to stay here. And Paul writes to him and basically says, Timothy, I'm going to be delayed. The Lord has other plans. I'm not going to be coming back. And you can almost hear Timothy sigh. <sighs> okay, I wasn't planning on staying here, but okay, I get it. So what, what are you going to write to me, Paul? And basically we get all of the instruction about teach them how to behave in the church. And it's not just talking about behavior, but about how a believer within the confines of God's appointed church ought to live, what relationships should be like, what truth should be like. Interestingly, history tells us that there's the possibility that because of the way that these letters were actually distributed, that there's the possibility that Timothy received first and second Timothy at the same time. My wife would know this. Part of the time we were engaged, we were back in that day where you actually wrote letters. To call her, I had a calling card, if you can imagine, calling from Canada to the United States. So I didn't call that often. So I would write letters, and there were times that she wouldn't get a letter for a long time, and then the Canadian Post getting it to the United States, and the United States Post getting it to her in Greenville, South Carolina, she'd get three or four letters all at one time. Well, in a sense, that could be what happened here. So imagine, I finished this first letter thinking, okay, and then you open the second one, and Paul says, oh, Timothy, by the way, I'm not coming at all. I'm going to die. Imagine the shock factor in that. And thus there is this personal element that comes to this epistle. It follows the genre form of an epistle, but there's almost this personal heart plea to this. And so we come to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, you then my child, you feel that personal connection. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I want to look at this passage really in two pieces, eight and following and one through seven. And really, this is didactic. Paul is writing to Timothy. He makes a personal plea. And I actually want to take the two paragraphs, if you will, and I want to flip them. Why? Because he makes a personal plea and speaks to his personal setting, but then he gets to the truth that it is that Timothy should be teaching in that setting. And I want us to look at the truth first, and then I want us to look at at the setting. And so what I want us to do is, is actually look first at verses 8 through 12, and I want us to see the truth that we possess. Because if we consider a cultural tsunami, what really is important for us? It's not a bunch of tactics. Frankly, it's a bunch of truth. And the world seems like it's adrift. God's people need the anchor of his truth. And so I want us just to consider some of the things he says about the truth we possess. And first of all, I want you to see the message the message. Notice what he says. If you get nothing else out of this message, I want you to see the first three words in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. When the world seems like it's adrift, remember Jesus. He's going to say some really significant things about Jesus. And as I dug into this passage, it was like, why would he use those two things? And I think he does so in a very, very important way. So I want you to see, first of all, that we're to remember uh, the, the message, and then we'll get to the, the methodology behind that message. But notice that he, in capturing this message, points out a couple of things about Jesus. Notice verse 8, what he says, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. There's all kinds of things we could say about Jesus, right? Why does he pick those two things? I think you'll see them as he, as he talks about the methodology. But I want you to see, first of all, he talks about the fact that he is risen from the dead. Friends, one of the things that he is doing here is actually capturing the whole of redemptive history in two statements, New Testament and Old Testament. And the New Testament he is capturing with what is the most significant event with regard to the establishment of the gospel. You might say, well, that's the cross. Yeah, there wouldn't be a gospel without the cross. But friends, if there was a cross with no resurrection, no one would believe it. And you'll find that throughout the scriptures, that the gospel is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus. I won't take the time to to take us there, but we know 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. That is actually the apologetic that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 15. Why does the resurrection matter? It matters because it corroborates everything that God said about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. How do I know Jesus changed water to wine? Because he rose from the dead. How do I know that Jesus healed the lame and brought sight to the blind? Because he rose from the dead. How do I know that Jesus was virgin born? Because he rose from the dead. How do I know that Jesus can and will save those that believe in him? Because he conquered the grave and he rose from the dead. If there was any question 
that Jesus Christ was who he said he was and did what he said he could do, it is answered in the resurrection. So when the world's adrift, remember Jesus. And ask yourself, is there any hope for this world today? Friend, he rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. In fact, Paul's description of what happened there is incredibly powerful. It wasn't that he managed to find a way out. Paul tells us the grave couldn't hold him. When Jesus, the Lord of life, died, he became the Lord of death. And hell realized who it had grabbed a hold of. And the grave couldn't hold him. Does Jesus have an answer for our world today? Just like he had an answer for our world 100 years ago. And just like he had an answer for a culture in chaos, which is what was going on in the first century world in which Paul is writing. Think our politics are bad today? Praise the Lord you don't show up in Washington, D.C. and see it lighted with your brothers and sisters who've died for their faith. But that's what was going on in Rome. Did Paul believe that Jesus was the answer? You'll see what he was willing to do in light of the fact that he knew that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So then why this second piece that he's risen from the dead and he talks then about him being the son of David? I want you to see not just as he risen from the dead, I want you to see he's a royal messiah. Why does he use this phrase? Because actually when you go back and, and look at this little phrase, you'll find it actually 17 times in the New Testament, son of David. And it actually is built without taking the time to go there on the fact that in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16 that there is a coming Christ, an anointed one who will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of David, the one who will rule and reign on David's throne forever and forever. And using this little phrase, what Paul is doing is saying, everything you saw about the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, Jesus is. He answered it all. Every promise that God made in the Old Testament and every need of man that became clearly uh, visible through the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled and answered. And so if you wonder, is he able? Remember that he is the one of whom it was said, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so these two little phrases are actually encouragements to us when we face a world in chaos. Remember Jesus. This is the message we have. This is the truth that we stand on when everything else is adrift. And it is truth that is given uniquely to the church. Remember, he's the one that said he would build it. He is the one who is the cornerstone upon which it is fashioned. He is the head of his church. And we are the pillar and ground of the truth. And that truth is found in Jesus. And so the message leads then to the methodology. In light of this truth, what are we supposed to do with this truth? And I want you to see that it is, first of all, according to Paul, proclaimed through preaching. He says this truth as preached in my gospel at the end of, of verse 8. Friends, I will say it to us this way. There is no substitute for a culture in chaos 
besides the speaking of truth and love. Is that easy today? No. Why? Because we've just gone through a colossal time where people went through a period of hyper-isolation. Anybody know what that's like? And then we coupled that with a period of hyper-information. We all were by ourselves, and we sat and we studied everything that we could possibly study. Many of us went to work virtually. And we got on the... What, who's saying what about what? And whether you believe Dr. Fauci or you don't, we all know what he said. We all got hyper-information. And now we're beginning to come back together. And you know what we have? We have hyper-polarization. Why? Because everybody has a firmly held, well-informed opinion that they're dying to share. And as Christians, you know what? We're too ready to interact with the narrative. Let me ask you, have you talked more about COVID than Christ? Now, I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about when you actually get to be together here. Do you talk more about COVID than Christ here? I have no idea your scenario because we walked into a store late yesterday and two sweet little ladies said, Hi, welcome. You know we're under a mask mandate. And I said, oh, yes, I do, but we're not in South Carolina. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to jab. But friend, in light of what God has called us to do in a culture and chaos and the truth that God has given us, are you really going to be polarized over whether or not you have to wear a mask? I mean, really? You say, it's my political belief. You realize when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi what he did? And you realize that Paul didn't have to go to prison. He could have told them he was a Roman citizen up front, and he didn't. He went to jail for the sake of the gospel. But interestingly, you know, a few days later when they figure it out and they come to get him, you know what he says? I'm a citizen. I'm not coming out. Come and get me. And he exercised his political rights for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because he realized that the only reason he needed political rights was to protect the church. And if he made them come and get him, that it was going to be a public statement. They couldn't persecute the church because of the fear of Rome coming against them. Friends, our political rights aren't an end in themselves. They're a means to an end. And that end is the gospel. Are we really going to let a pandemic paralyze the church? You say, wow, I didn't see that in 2 Timothy. So he talks about the methodology and he says, as preached in my gospel, friends, if we are going to help our culture, it's not going to be because we found another expert that knows better than the culture does about the pandemic. Because getting a right answer on a pandemic still isn't going to unify us. You do realize that, don't you? You ever been in a really heated debate where in the end you did prove it and you were right? How many of you, even in that scenario, found the person saying, man, I'm so glad you were right. Let's be friends. That's not what happens, is it? We actually have to change the narrative. We are living in a world that doesn't just need help, it needs hope. It's hopeless. And hope is only found in Christ. It's time for us to get back to speaking Christ to the culture. As preached in my gospel, who are you telling about Jesus? But then secondly, I want you to see that it's presented through suffering. He says, for which I am suffering bound with change as a criminal. Now, by the way, he's not saying he is a criminal, so they threw him in jail. He's saying, I've been thrown in jail and I'm being treated like a criminal. 
Don't think that whenever you make the decision, you say, okay, that's it. I'm not fighting anymore about that sort of stuff. I'm just going to go tell them about Jesus that they're going to say, oh, man, I am so glad you're not talking about COVID. Tell me about Christ. I hope that happens, but probably that's not going to happen. And so you know, history bears that out from Paul to today. We haven't gotten that response in culture. But the interesting thing is I talked about a tsunami. You know what's interesting when a tsunami is over? All that power. Nothing stands in its way. But what does water do when it's done? When the water's going back to the shore, does it push over buildings? Like, does it get to the end and say, okay, we're done. Turn around, ramp itself up, and rush back to the water? No, it doesn't. Water's a coward. It always finds the path of least resistance. And for too many people, they think that is actually the mantra for finding God's will. How do I know what God wants me to do? I'll try it, and if it's hard, that's obviously not God's will. I'll try something else. And we do what water does. We become a coward that finds the way we're supposed to live by the path of least resistance. I challenge you to find that anywhere in the New Testament. Friends, if the health and wealth gospel were true, we'd question whether or not the Apostle Paul is in heaven. Because he's suffering as a criminal. We'd say, dude, you must not have sowed your seed money. The Roman post must have gone sideways. You obviously didn't get your prayer cloth. You see, friends, the gospel has always been brought to a culture through courageous warriors who say, Jesus is worth it. And thus you see then, thirdly, the miraculous work of God. And notice he makes this incredibly bold pronouncement. And he does so for very personal reasons. He says the word of God is not bound. Why does Paul say that? Because Timothy wondered whether or not it was? No. Because Timothy somehow was living in fear that somehow Paul is this great guy. And if Paul fails, will this whole thing fall apart? And what he is saying to him is, Timothy, the work of the church isn't built on personality. This is not all up to me. I am bound, but God's word isn't bound. Friends, I want you to know the word of God is still quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it still pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and it is still today a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. As we look at what I do in this culture, one of the things I want you to realize is God is not asking you to be a superhero. He's asking you simply to be submitted. You're right. Who has an answer for this culture? Not me, not you, not us together. God does. And I don't know how, but God works supernaturally through the living Word of God that is able to pierce men's hearts, help them see the error of their way. Bring them from darkness to light. Transform them from death to life. And equip them for every good work. That's the word of God. And so his word will be transmitted. And his work will be done. So let me quickly take you to the other piece. And it's not a half. The task we face. And I want to walk you through this quickly. I want you to see this well-known phrase, right? The things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, commit thou also to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We know that very well. In this setting, what do I believe Paul is saying? I don't believe he's saying, now, Timothy, look, part of the future work of the church is you need to build a seminary. 
I actually think he's going to pour out some really powerful truths. I want you to see, first of all, this work is personal. He said, the things you learned of me. Well, that assumes something. Paul learned something. And then in a very personal way, Timothy learned it from Paul. Can I challenge you with this truth? If you feel that your camera of life is beginning to drift, get back in God's Word in such a way that you're getting God's Word in you. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy law. Thy word have I treasured up in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. Friends, I ask you this question in the midst of the chaos of the last two years. How has your personal walk with God, how has your personal study of the word of God been affected? If we're going to see God use the church to make a difference, it will be because God's people allow God's word to make a difference in them. Are you in the word? In such a way that you're getting the word in you. This is personal. By the way, I want to make one other application of that. It's personal. Remember, it was Paul had learned something and he taught it to Timothy. It's personal in the interpersonal connection. Discipleship actually calls for personal involvement in corporate truth. I believe the church declares the truth and there's a key place God establishes for the public proclamation of the word of God. What happens personally? Accountability. Encouragement. Reinforcement. Establishment for execution. The church is both. There's this relationship between Paul and Timothy. That wasn't because he was an apostle and leading a school. It was because they were brethren. Notice he says to him, and he starts this, my child. Let me ask you this question. In the midst of a culture and chaos, whose life are you making a difference in? Do you know where your wife is spiritually? Parents, do you know where your children are spiritually? I'm not talking about going out today and finding some stranger you have nothing to do with, build a relationship with him so you can disciple him to be more like Christ. Let's start at home. Church, let me ask you a question. You've been going to the same Sunday school class for a long, long time and you're really excited to be back together. Do you know what happened in those people's lives in the last 18 months? I don't mean about what happened to them physically. I mean, do you know what happened to them spiritually? Have you asked anybody, hey, how's the pandemic affected your walk with God? It's time for us to get back to real questions and say, hey, you know what? Are you afraid to live for Jesus? Do you know what that means today? See, it was personal. But then secondly, I want you to see that this work is powerful. He uses a really important word, one that we misunderstand, I think. These are the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses. You and I know this word. It comes from the Greek word martyr. That's our English word, martyr. What's a martyr? If I asked you, you'd probably say it's somebody who died for their faith. That's not what it means in the New Testament. It actually means someone who lived for their faith. So what is he saying here? There's a bunch of people that stood around while I was teaching you, so you better smarten up. That's not what he's saying. He actually is using it similarly to the author of Hebrews who talks about a great cloud of witnesses. They are people whose lives bear truth, bear uh, um, testimony to the fact that what they believed was true. They're not cheering for you to finish your race, by the way. They're cheering to you that the one you're running for actually is faithful. They're saying, you can trust him, keep on running. 
These witnesses were people whose lives bore witness to the fact that what they believed was true. Timothy, in hearing what Paul said to him, could look around and see people that the truth had changed their life. What does that sound like to you? That the context of this personal relationship is in a community of people whose lives have been changed. Let me ask you, friend, as a parent is discipling their child, and the child begins to wonder if it's real, can they look at your life and say, look at Jim, his life has changed. Look at Paul. His life has changed. Look at Mary. Have you heard her story? Maybe you should go to coffee with Mary and let her tell you about what Jesus did in her life. Friends, this is a church. You say, oh, I wasn't radically saved. If you're saved, you were radically saved. The human story is not the true radical story. It's the story of what Jesus did in saving you. And friends, it's time for us in a culture in chaos to surround those who are growing in their faith with witnesses who are willing to say, this is what Jesus is doing for me. It's powerful truth, but then thirdly, it's passionate truth. Notice what he says. Commit thou to faithful men. It's an interesting word. This word commitment is a real issue in our culture. But he actually doesn't use it that way. It's actually the idea of entrusting and the passion that he has in, in giving this truth is not that he's giving it away. Okay, I'm done. I'm out of here. Good luck with that, Timothy. It actually is a word that is communicating relationally. That I have come to the place that there's something I value so much that I don't just want to convince you of its value. I want to see you change so you value it the way I do. So let me ask you, friend. Are you interacting with the people that God has put in your sphere of influence so that they somehow, through your conversation, know how much you value God's truth and are being persuaded that it's valuable? Does the world you live in actually know that you value God's word? And are you endeavoring to see them come to the place that they value it too? Let me stop for a moment. I was a pastor for a long time. I don't remember a year when we didn't over and over and over and over and over and over. You say, okay, get on with it. Yeah, but it's really that we didn't beg people to work in children's ministry. Has it changed? Thankfully, we don't have nurseries at universities, but sometimes I think we should because the children are bigger. Friends, ask yourself, in light of this truth, why is that true? Who are the easiest people on the planet to convince that something is valuable? Why is it that we're not so passionate about finding little lives that aren't filled with confusion to pour into and tell them our story? We ought to actually be fighting to get people out of the nursery and come and sit in here. Because we're so passionate about shaping little lives. See, Paul is passionate about this. But then lastly, I want you to see that the work is purposeful. It was that you so come to grips with the value of this thing that you cannot help but pass it on. Give it to others who will be able, equipped to teach others also. That getting the truth isn't an end in itself. You do realize that. God didn't get the truth to you so that you would love it all your life and die. Take it with you. 
That actually it is about who will carry on in my stead. I had a man recently who was finishing his course in ministry as a pastor. He stepped away from the pastorate, still doing some preaching. And he said to me this, he said, you know what? I ran almost my entire life with a wrong understanding of the race because I didn't understand its finish. I ran most of my life in ministry with the goal being to break the tape at the end. And I realized that's not even the race I'm in. There isn't a tape. There should be a waiting hand to take the baton. And he said, if I had to go back and run it again, I would run through the lens of somebody needs to be here. And part of my goal in running is that they understand what I'm doing so that when it comes time to hand the baton, they know actually what I'm giving them. That I don't just run up and throw it to them and say, good luck. That's not just for pastors, friend. So let's make this real. You're 65. You're 60. You're old like me. You're 52 almost. And you look at this generation and you're not sure what they're thinking. But you're pretty sure whatever you're thinking, they don't want to know. Do you know what? You couldn't be further from the truth. Gen Z is marked by four characteristics. The first is a longing for identity. A second is a longing for maturity. I want to know who I am, and once I know that, I need to know how I become what I'm supposed to be. The third is community. I long to belong somewhere. And the fourth then is synergy. This generation does not want to do something great to change the world. They want to do something together to change the world. They're a generation uniquely marked by a longing to make a difference through relationship. You might be shocked if you just simply said, hey, you know what? I know I'm old, but I'd love to buy you breakfast at the response you get. Now, you can do that with someone else's kids, but maybe you ought to do it with your grandkids. And yes, there's going to be a difference. Someone asked me today about this and said, you know what, I have a grandchild, I don't think they'll mind, I won't point them out, but they said, here's basically what they said, and and this is not new information to me. I'd love to have a relationship with you if you keep these things out of the relationship, and one of them being our faith. What do you do with that? Ask them how you're supposed to do that. Ask that young person, okay, I hear what you're saying, tell me, how am I supposed to get my faith out of my life? And you know what? They'll wrestle really hard with that and they'll come to the reality that, you know what? Your faith is not something you do. It's who you are. That should be true. Friends, engage. Why? Not because you love them so much, but because you love the truth so much. And thus he finishes with three illustrations. I'll I'll put it up here in case you're taking notes, the toil we face. And these illustrations are powerful. I'm not going to walk through them all, but I'll put them up so that you can get them if you want the notes. Basically, they're not elaborate. I've seen books written on these. That's not Paul's point. When he gives us three illustrations in succession like he does with the tongue, the point is that he's trying to drive home a central truth. And so what is the central truth he's saying up here? He said the soldier is dedicated. He doesn't get distracted. The athlete is disciplined. He doesn't get distracted. And the farmer is dependent. And what he is saying there is in their agrarian culture, he is actually saying, you know first, this isn't a job that you get a paycheck and go home and do something else. That if you don't grow this crop, you're going to die because you have to eat it first. And what he actually is saying in light of this truth is this. It's time for us to get focused. 
that the gospel is not something we do. It's who we are. The transmission of the truth. Friend, it will happen. Remember the truth. Remember Jesus. The church will not fail. The question is, are you going to be involved? Because Jesus has, is, and will build His church. And the Word of God is not bound. The question is, are you going to live in such a way that you let Him use you to be a part of it? Pastor, you come. just a moment, I want to have Pastor Wes come and lead us in a song of response. Before he does that, I want to just highlight a couple of truths that we've heard over the last two weeks. If you were here with us last week, Brad Young talked about this very simple truth. It's not about programs, it's about people. That's what their ministry has been based on. It doesn't mean that we don't have some level of a program. Sunday morning service is a program, per se, But his emphasis was on the fact that it's about focusing on people. Pastor Benson said it. He brought it up. No, I didn't tell him to say it. He said it. As of right now, Kids for Truth began a couple of weeks ago, and we had moms bring their kids here and had to leave because we did not have enough people willing to work in children's ministry. That's on us. People came to my depression class first week. They couldn't come back because there was no one to care for their kids. It's just the way it is. Statistics are kind of like sterile galls at the doctor's office. They don't seem to mean much to us. And yet when we hear statistics like, and I read this, I've read this for a couple of years now, that bivocational pastors, church planting, church revitalization efforts are going untouched because people won't serve. The average pastor lasts three years. It was about year five that I said, I'm done with this. And it's only by God's grace that I've made it to 20. It's hard. I'm going to tell you that for a pity. pity. I don't want self-pity. I'm not after that. But it's the life of a soldier. It's the life of a shepherd. It's the life that God gives to those whom he calls. And you know what? There's nothing better than doing that. Today, Pastor Benson mentioned it's not about tactics, it's about truth. We need a plan. We'd be foolish to not have one. But when you look at the contagion that is infecting our culture, and no, I am not talking about COVID. I'm talking about the contagion of sin. What's the answer? Shiny, fancy programs, shiny, fancy tactics, or the truth? We know the answer. It's the truth. We know the answer that we would all agree. It's about people, not programs. How do you see the new people in our ministry? people that you can't wait to meet and minister to and get to know or somebody who's messing up the church the way that it used to be. The body of Christ, it's a unique bunch. Lots of opinions, lots of ideas, lots of thoughts to which I say praise the Lord. Because when we are unified in our differences, 
we can minister in a way that's beyond any one of us. That's the point. So I don't know what God's doing in your heart this morning. I pray that He's working in your own heart, in your own life. And so we're going to sing a song, and this song is for you to respond how the Lord leads. I'll be at the front. If you want to talk to someone, you're always welcome to do that. If you want to come and pray, you're welcome to do that. But oftentimes these moments of response come privately, and maybe it's something that you just need to get right in your own life. Don't be shy. If you feel, I remember sitting in services and the Lord laying this burden on my heart for vocational ministry. I didn't see writing in the sky. I didn't hear voices in my head telling me. I just had a passion to do it, and I still do. Is that passion in you? He who desires the office of a, of a pastor, of a bishop, desires a good thing. And maybe there's some other individual decision that you need to make this morning that only you know. And I would ask that as we sing, you do business with the Lord this morning. Let's stand and let's reprise one of the songs that we sang earlier in our service. And let me please challenge you to sing this as a prayer. And let's ask God how he wants to use us to take his message to our body and to the world, just as I am without one plea. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to being here today. You are dismissed. Have a great week.